We're going to pick up from where we left off this morning in Hebrews chapter 7. There's a tremendous amount of information in Hebrews 7 as we get into looking at Melchizedek, specifically who he was. Um, before we, we start looking at uh, some of the implications of the text, um, I did this evening or this morning um, mention a Christophany, and a Christophany is uh, how I defined it this morning is a is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before Bethlehem, appearing in the Old Testament. That's different from a theophany. Theophany is an appearance of God. And I know that that can be confusing, um, but you think of in, uh, for instance, in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles and sees the face of God. Most would consider that what we would call a theophany. It's an appearance of God in some visible form. Uh, that's uh, in distinction from the second person of the Trinity. Um, being visible in some sense. And so, in, an example of it, a classic example of it, would be Joshua. In chapter 5 of Joshua, we see a Christophany. And this is an appearance of Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. And Joshua is about ready to um, go into Jericho. The walls of Jericho are going to come down. And we read in verse 13, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. So you see something distinct here is there's a man in front of Joshua, and he has a sword. So there's someone in front of him. He visibly sees this person. And Joshua went up to him and said, Are you... For us or for our adversaries? And I love the answer, no. <laughs> no. But he goes, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So why this is not just an angel, an appearance of an angel, is because an angel would not accept worship. That's the most um, obvious point of the text, that this is a Christophany. But then also the fact that very similar language to Moses before the burning bush is that take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. So... Uh, Christophany is the appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. A theophany is an appearance of God in the Old Testament. And you usually see it with a phrase of, they saw the face of God. Uh, you think of Moses going to Sinai. You think of Jacob wrestling. You think of even, in some sense, even in um, the garden. And so, I just wanted to be clearer on those two different things. Uh, because they can be tricky. I, I personally, and I'm just getting personally, I uh, tend to see more Christophanies than um, 
Others do. For instance, the burning bush, I think, is a Christophany of some sort. Um, R.C. Sproul thinks that. In fact, it was him that drew that to my attention. And so I, I, I think that you see them more than not. Some will just simply title them theophanies. Um, and we brought that up because um, of Melchizedek. Uh, there's the interpretation that Melchizedek was a Christophany. Um, uh, I don't think that the text says that. Um, and so that's why we discussed, or that's why we're bringing up that Christophany this morning, or this evening. So let us hear uh, Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Uh, to summarize what the argument is in this passage, is that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and because he is greater than Abraham, we see that Scripture reveals that Christ is in the priestly line of Melchizedek, which is a greater line than the sons of Abraham, Levi. And the reason this argument is being made is because these Hebrews were looking at going back to the Old Covenant, looking back to going to that Levitical code under the Levitical priesthood. And so our author is making the argument to go back would be to go back to something that is inferior and you are deserting the superior. That is the summary of what this argument is, and it, the argument continues on that the Melchizedek priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood, and Christ, therefore, is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Now, when you begin to look at this as this morning, we begin to apply this text, we're going to continue to apply it because we might ask, why is this important? Well, in John Owen's commentary, his seven-volume commentary on Hebrews, he comes up with, on the first three verses, 32 observations that he makes. 
And what's incredible about Owen's 32 observations is sometimes it's just a short sentence, and a Puritan sentence, by the way, is like one of our paragraphs. Uh, but he sometimes they're just really short, and then sometimes there's several pages with point after subpoint after subpoint on one of his observations. We're not going to be going through all 32 of his observations this evening, but we're going to draw from a few of them and a few that um, I've added as well. And so I'm, I'm just summarizing some of the ones that I thought would help us as we look at this text. And the first is this. Owen says, and I'm, I'm, this is my words of what Owen wrote. And because remember, when you quote Owen, you have to then interpret him. So this is my interpretation of what he wrote. When there is a mysterious and important truth shown in Scripture, it is our duty to search out the truth contained therein. So when we come across this shadowy figure of Melchizedek, and we see the importance of him, he begins in chapter 5 of Hebrews and continues on through chapter 7, we see he plays a pivotal role in this book. So he occupies an important place in the book of Hebrews. So therefore, it's an important point that is being conveyed to us about him. And so what Owen is saying, when we see this, even if it's mysterious, even if it's difficult to understand, we have to, according to Scripture, apply ourselves as best as we can to understanding what the point of the text is. So here's the encouragement to us, is that first, this is a difficult passage of Scripture, as is Hebrews chapter 1 through 13. It's all difficult, and so we are to apply ourselves diligently to the text, and in particular, to this Melchizedek figure. Now, how do we do this in this text? Well, the way Owen does it is he just simply begins to look at the text and asks what the text says of Melchizedek, who he is. What is it that he did? How is it that he appears on, script, on the pages of Scripture? And as you begin to simply ask the questions, well, who was he? Well, he was a king. Where was he a king at? In Salem. Where's Salem? Well, that would be what we call Jerusalem today. You begin to unfold the mystery of this character as you do so. I think that it's also important that we, when we begin to look at these difficulties in scriptures, we consult teachers that come before us. It's important to ask, what did this church think of Melchizedek and who this shadowy figure was? And read of what saints of the past said. What did Calvin say? What did Owen say? What did Augustine say? And so on and so forth. We begin to look and ask what it is traditionally the church has understood this man to have been. So, I also want to point out that the text itself makes this point that Owen makes. Verse 4, see how great this man was. That is speaking of Melchizedek. See how great this man is. And as I pointed out this morning, that word see is, is, is sometimes translated to be consider. And it's an imperative, which means it's a command. So it, it's, it's almost as if there's something given of the text. It's hard to follow. And then he says, by command, you need to pay attention to this. 
You need to pay attention to this. And so I think that the scripture itself tells us that we need to do our due diligence in all parts of scripture. A second point that Owen makes of this text is God is able to raise up the greatest light in the greatest darkness. God is able to raise up the greatest light in the greatest darkness. When you look at Melchizedek, as we mentioned this morning, he's not of Abraham's line. Abraham is chosen of God. He's the one through whom the Messiah will come according to the flesh. Melchizedek's this figure that we don't know anything about, but he's a king. He exists in time. He exists in history. And there he is, surrounded by Sodom and Gomorrah, by the Canaanites. And you wonder, in the darkest places, can God raise someone up? That Not only raise up someone, but someone to whom Abraham pays a tithe to. You think of even in the coming of Christ, in Matthew chapter 4, we read in verse 16, in verse 15, when Jesus begins his, verse, his ministry, it says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. It's amazing to think you wonder, what was the ministry of Melchizedek there in Salem? There's no doubt that he was a priest of the Most High who clearly knew that the Lord was the creator of all that exists and was the possessor. He knew that God was sovereign over all things. What was his ministry like? What was his preaching ministry like? So in this dark area of time where we think only Abraham is set aside, no. There's this king of righteousness there that is one of God's people in the most darkest places and one of the darkest times. Again, it's, it's hard not to emphasize the fact that he was near Sodom and Gomorrah, the place that God rained down judgment upon. That should encourage us, shouldn't it? Even in dark times, even in dark areas, where it seems like the gospel is absent, God is able to raise up a great light, and he certainly does. The third thing is this, is the call of Melchizedek is a prefiguration of the eventual call of Gentile nations. You know, you start from Genesis and you go through into the book of Acts and you stop at the book of Acts and you see it's so clear that God's call to the nations is all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, When I took my missions class, our professor challenged us to go through and write down all of the passages in the Old Testament that spoke of the nations and the light going out to the nations. And we went through and wrote them all down. And um, at a church that I pastored, the first church I pastored, we actually on a Wednesday night just read through every one of those passages with no comment, just read them. And, and you saw so clearly God's plan for the Gentile nations. 
Um, but something that hadn't dawned on me until thinking through this passage is that actually Melchizedek is the start of that. He's a Gentile. He's not of Abraham's line, but yet there he is, a priest of the Lord Most High. It's incredible to think about. And so not only is he a type in terms of Christ, he's also a type of the mystery unfolding that we're told that there is going to be the church of Jews and Gentiles together. In fact, this is Paul calls the mystery, and the mystery itself is the church where Jew and Gentile are together. What do we see in Melchizedek and Abraham? We see a picture, actually, of the church, don't we? Gentile nation. Another point is this, and this is something for us to think about. In a nation where we have, for the most part, predominantly been Christian. And when I say Christian, I don't mean that the predominant amount of people had regenerated hearts. We might like to think so, but we don't know that. But our culture has been largely a Christian culture in many ways for this country's history. Majority of people went to church. And that has been dropping off. And so this Owen makes this point. God gives various intervals unto different places based on Melchizedek. Because after Melchizedek's out of the scene, the Jebusites take over. They ain't following God. So you have a place where a king is ruling a territory, and that's how we should view these kings that you sometimes see prop up in Uh, Genesis is they weren't like kings where they had massive land, but they were over a over a territory. That's why you can have several kings all in one little place of land because their territory they were the king over it. But you see, Jerusalem was a place of worship. Melchizedek led his people as a king of righteousness and as a king of peace and one who would have told of God, but then. He dies and it's given over to the Jebusites and then it's captured by David. And when Jerusalem is captured by David, what happens to Jerusalem? Becomes a place of worship again, doesn't it? It's amazing how God works. And then Jerusalem, by the time of Christ, is largely a place of superstition. I had a friend that sent me pictures from um, the Welling Wall He's in Israel right now, and uh, when you see the picture of that, actually, and and Michael and I saw something of this similar in in the New Jersey airport, is, is the superstition that comes now with the Judaism and the wailing wall of them bowing before it and moving back and forth, and that's how it's prayed. So it's become a place of idolatry. You think of our country that experienced the Great Awakening under Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and George Whitfield and the massive movement of God that took place in this country. And then a century later where there was another movement of God under other preachers of Moody and the like. And you think of all the tent revivals that took place throughout the early 20th century. 
And then what do we see today? There seems to be a removal of God's hand from our country. And rather, His wrath is upon us now. A place of worship, a place that we see churches on every corner to where we see churches going out of business or maybe being turned into a bar or being bought to be a mosque. I think that we also, though, can recognize that there's even hope in what we see is that Jerusalem was a place of worship and the Lord removes his hand from it and then he puts his hand back upon it again. In Japan, there was a growing group of Christians there to where Japan was going poised to be a Christian nation hundreds of years ago. And the Lord removed his hand from Japan and darkness reigned over the land. Today, it's considered a lost people group. Despite there being churches there, less than 2% of the population is Christian. San Francisco is, according to missiologists, a lost people group. That's just a reality. But yet there was blooming churches in San Francisco at one time. We see them absent now. And so God gives various intervals unto places. The fifth point, the very first personal instituted type of Christ was a priest. Remember, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. The very first personal type of Christ is where it's a priest. You think of there were prior types of Christ in Adam and Abel and Noah and the ark, but the first personal type was Melchizedek. And the office of Melchizedek was that of a priest. Christ is our great high priest. And so the very first personal glimpse that you get of Christ in Scripture is that of a priest mediating on behalf of Abraham. Christ mediates now on behalf of Abraham's children. What a beautiful picture of our Lord and Savior that we see in that encounter between them and that the first personal type of Christ was actually that of a priest. Another observation that Owen makes is this, all events and struggles among nations will be brought into subservancy and for the interest of the church of Christ. What is he talking about? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 14, I just want to look at the events here. Genesis chapter 14. You begin in verses 1 through 16. There's a several names, several places mentioned. And basically what's taking place is there are five kings against four kings. And in these, this, this war that takes place between these kings, Sodom is taken over. Lot, Abraham's nephew, who decided to go to Sodom, is kidnapped. 
And as he's kidnapped, Abraham then raises up an army of 318 men from his own home to come and rescue his, his nephew. Now, from Abraham's point of view, this seems horrible, and it is horrible. His nephew is, is kidnapped, and he's going to do a search and rescue mission with these trained soldiers. This all leads to the meeting of Melchizedek. You see in verse 17 of Genesis 14, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Lomar and the kings who were with him. Why was all of this taking place? Why is it that Abraham met Melchizedek? when he met him. Did it have anything to do with God's sovereign hand over the nations? Absolutely. Absolutely. The events that took place surrounding Abraham, a war takes place between kings, rises to the opportunity for Abraham to raise an army, the Lord gives Abraham victory? And then, does, is it just by chance that Melchizedek comes out for the purpose of giving him refreshments? Or is this according to God's plan? You see, whenever there's nations in conflict with one another, we see that as something that's taking, a, taking place. What we need to do is look at it in the big picture that God is actually working for His purposes. And this is for the purposes of the church. It was here as well. It was that opportunity. And closely related to this, Owen goes on to say in another observation, God will do with nations according to what is required and needed of the church. In other words, God is sovereignly raising up kingdoms, tearing kingdoms down. What's that from? Jeremiah. Where God says, I will raise up nations and I will tear nations down. It's very explicit there, but we see it here in the text here. He's raising up these nations. He's raising up these events. He's raising up all of these controversies. All of these are taking place for the sake of his people. Isaiah 43 makes it so clear in verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Is God sovereign over nations and world events? Absolutely. And is He doing that? according to his purposes for his glory? Yes, absolutely. I don't think we have a hard time saying yes to that. But is he doing it for the good of his church? Yes, he is, even when we don't see it. What a reminder for us. Think of the birth of Christ. Why does Luke spend so much time speaking of the Roman government? You might say, well, because he was a historian and he was trying to give it an accurate history, and that's absolutely true, but he's also showing us 
the state that they were in when Christ came. And what that state was in is they were under Roman occupancy. If, if Israel had been free during the birth of Christ and they had a Davidic king, how would they have looked at Christ? It actually changes the course of history, the fact that they were under Roman occupancy, because when Christ comes, what were they looking for? A Davidic king to ride the war horse. And so what did they miss? The Messiah that rode the donkey. God was sovereignly in charge of all that took place surrounding the birth of Christ. That includes nations. That includes God controlling the nations, leading the nations. Another observation is this, and this is, could be somewhat of a difficult one. The Lord blesses lawful and just war. Because Abraham was in a lawful and just war, and Melchizedek blesses him after coming back from war with spoils from war. There was a lawful and necessary cause for war for Abraham. Melchizedek blesses him as a result of that and replenishes him. Do we hate war? Yes, because we are people of peace. Our king is the prince of peace. We desire to live at peace with all men. But does that mean that war is to be... um, to be completely rejected? No, war is sometimes necessary. In fact, a just war, as we see here, is even blessed. We want to do all we can and strive for the peace of the nations, but we live in a sin-fallen world. And there's going to be war, there's going to be oppression, there's going to be times where there needs to be nations that get kicked down a notch. And so there are times where there is a just war. And I think we have to, as Christians, we have to think through very carefully, not only looking at history and how we judge wars of the past and what we think of them, we have to be asking that question, is that a just war? Is that a lawful war according to God's word? And if it's not, then, then, then we, we have to call it for what it is. There's another aspect of this that I think is also difficult and could be taken the wrong way, one way or another. But when he comes back, Abraham comes back from war, what does he do with what he got? Well, he gives it to Melchizedek. He received spoils from war, That is, he took materials, Abraham and his army took materials, they took things from those kings that they conquered, and when he returns and is met by Melchizedek, Abraham, or Abram, gave him a tenth of everything. This is an interesting thing to think about because it recognizes spoils that came from wickedness. Being given back to 
Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High. Uh, the only thing that I can think of that, that, and perhaps if you think of something else too, I'd be interested in hearing it, but, it, but what comes to mind to me is the plundering of the Egyptians. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 21, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. In chapter 12 of Exodus. You see it in verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Can I have that gold plate? Here you go. Can I have that silver chalice? It's yours. Can I have your jewelry? Here you go. You know what's interesting about that? I want you to put this in in chronological order with me. Genesis chapter 14 what we see is that Abram goes to war. He collects the spoils from war, these enemies of God's people. And he collects these spoils of war. You go over to chapter 15 and we begin to see the formalization of the covenant. And what's so interesting in that covenant statement is something regarding the plundering of the Egyptians. Think about the chronology of this. He collects and plunders from these kings. Chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and says, I will make you a great nation. And then he says this in the promise of verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, which is speaking of the plundering of the Egyptians, the very thing that Abram just did to these other kings. That's incredible. But, but how is it that they built the tabernacle? I mean, where did these slaves all of a sudden get material wealth? Well, the Egyptians. How did they build the golden calf that was part of their downfall? Where did that come from? From the Egyptians. It's really incredible to think about. You know, one thing is, is that we have to recognize um, is this is that God was bringing punishment upon the Egyptians as he promised for their sin. That's why they were plundered. It was God's punishment on them for their wickedness. In fact, the Abrahamic covenant tells us that says that your people will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment. We have to keep that in the context of what's being said here. But I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, quote, Those who will not be God's sons become his tools. And that certainly was true of the Egyptians. John Gill, the Baptist pastor, almost a century before Spurgeon in the same church, wrote this, 
This was doing no other than that what acceding to the law of nations is lawful to be done in a time of war, to spoil, plunder, and distress an enemy in whatsoever way it can be done. And it was used to the advantage of people, of God's people. They plundered the Egyptians. Sometimes uh, one of my friends will, it's a pastor, will say, Rob, you just need to plunder the Egyptians sometimes. There's something that flows out of this, though, that I want us to think about. Abraham shows us the partnership with, what the, with the world, what it looks like as a follower of Christ. And what I mean by that is this. Lot was in Sodom. Sodom's about ready to be destroyed. He rescues and goes after these other kings not to rescue Sodom. Does Sodom benefit from what Abraham does? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, notice what it says in verse 17 of Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevet. Now, the mention of the king of Sodom and Melchizedek is drawing a contrast between these two. So from verse 17 through verse 24, we're supposed to be a contrast between these two kings. One is wicked, one is a priest of the Most High. So we're seeing that contrast. But they both come out to meet Abram. And Abram gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. Then verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, Passover, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. So, did Sodom benefit from Abraham? Yeah. And while the text doesn't say this, did those kings that were the wicked kings that were fighting the other wicked kings, let's say the wicked kings that Abram was rescuing his, with for his nephew, did they benefit and did Abraham benefit from them? Probably likely so. But then Abraham gives nothing to Sodom, the king of Sodom, and takes nothing from him in way of a partnership. And this is the key. To have done so would have made a covenant of peace with the king of Sodom. They might mutually benefit from one another, but there's no covenant of peace between the two of them. And that gives us a picture of how the Christian lives in this world. Do you benefit from the secular world? Yeah, you do. Whether it's music, whether it's art, whether it's literature, 
whether it's science, whether it's the medical field, and do they benefit from us? Absolutely. We have this relationship. But we don't make an alliance. We don't make a gospel alliance with them. We recognize that there's two different teams. And those shared things that we have, we come at them from different perspectives. They're not neutral. And so I think if you study Abraham and his response to the king of Sodom, it gives you a glimpse of what it looks like to live as a Christian in this world. There's another point is this, is that Abram gives us an example of tithing. He collects this spoil. It's now his. He won it lawfully. And he does what? He gives it back to the Lord. It was a mercy of the Lord that Abram was able to rescue Lot and to collect these spoils and then to give to Melchizedek. And so what is tithing? It's a a recognition, as I said this morning, that I, I don't own anything. I don't own anything. And I think that that's a way we have to think, not only about tithing, but what it is that we have, that we're, we're, we're placed to be stewards of it and to be good stewards of what the Lord has given us. Owen makes another point. It's an honor to serve in the church for the use of future generations. This was Melchizedek's honor. I want you to let that sit in as you are part of this church and all of you are members of the church and part of the church and active in the church. You're on a Sunday night. Your service in the church is your honor to bless and to be used of future generations. Did you ever think about that? That what you do now actually matters later on. Uh, Maybe that tree that you plant that's just a sapling, maybe in my daughter's time, it's a big oak that provides shade. You think about that, and anything that we do is for the benefit of future generations. Even if we don't see the fruit of it now, that's our honor to be part of that. Praise God for that. And finally, Christ abiding as priest forever means that there is no more vicar or successor to follow him. Now, when Owen uses that word vicar, he has a target in mind. And and who's his target? It's Rome. Rome would call the Pope the vicar of Christ. When actually you read of this line of Melchizedek and the priesthood forever, it it nullifies any future priest. There is no more mediators between man and God. Christ is it. Why would would you want another mediator? Uh, Rome has gone to the absurdity of, of saying, now we have to appeal to the mother of God to appeal to Christ. We have one mediator between God and man. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that the priesthood is gone. It's absent. 
Sometimes I don't think we recognize the significant fault lines between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. There are some irreconcilable gulfs, and one of them is the priesthood. On the one hand, there's the priesthood of all believers. And on the other hand, there is one priest between God and man. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but what? Through me. He is our great mediator. And this also brings us such great comfort in knowing that I am not going to mediate on my own behalf. I'm not going to be the one that does this. Someone's already done it for me and continues to do it for me because I fell continually. And he is our eternal mediator that ever lives to mediate on behalf of his church. I wish we could go through all 32 of his observations, but we went through a few of them, and I would encourage you to to consider some of these yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.